0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread.
1: Hey guys, just a few announcements before we get started with our episode. If you haven't heard, there's still time to sign up for Dr. Vera Tarman's course on food addiction. The sugar and food addiction course will guide you through why you feel out of control around food and how to break free. It's a self-paced online video-based training program designed to help you understand the biology and neurochemistry of food addiction so that you can identify the specific foods and food behaviors that are problematic for you to create your own food plan that you can implement and enjoy for the long term. Equipped with the plan that works best for you. You can begin to feel free of the hold a food has over you take control of your eating habits and finally achieve the weight loss and health goals that you're so desperately seeking. The course is three weeks and it's $167 U S link is in the show notes. Also, don't forget you can still join us in Bristol for the international food addiction conference, May 20th, and stay for the Public Health Collaboration Conference, May 21st and 22nd. You can also find that link in the show notes. Okay, guys, we have a super special guest today. Suzanne Cologne has been meditating in the insight tradition since 1992. She completed the Bar Center for Buddhist Studies Integrated Study and Practice Program in 2014 and Spirit Rock Meditation Center's Community's Dharma Leader Training Program in 2017. She is a co-founder of the Bozeman Dharma Center and shares leadership of the Insight Meditation community. Suzanne has spent 12 years exploring modalities of Western psychology as a layperson and how the tools of meditation can be used in psychological and emotional healing. She joined the Million Self Compassion Course Teacher Training in 2016 and the Somatic Experiencing Trainings in 2017. She is thrilled to join forces with others in the field to offer meditation and wellness practices in the Bozeman area. And now, because of Zoom, you can join from all over the country. In today's episode, Suzanne shares her story why meditation is worth our time, misconceptions about mindfulness and meditation, what mindful self compassion is, tools for your backpack, a guided practice on shame.
0: And she answers our signature question Welcome, Suzanne. All right, Suzanne, we are so excited for you to be here today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled and thanks for inviting me. So we're just going to jump right in. Will you tell our listeners a bit about your personal, professional story, how you came to be a teacher of mindful self-compassion? Also, a bit about how did you co-found the Bozeman Dharma Center and co-lead the Bozeman Insight Meditation Community? How did this become your path? Well, actually, I love being asked that because I don't get
2: to tell this story very often anymore, and it's really meaningful to me, and I think will be helpful to your listeners um, because... Like everyone, it comes out of suffering, comes out of struggle, it comes out of groping around in life for, you know, what can help me feel better is really how it started. So I first, I'll just say that I come from a household that was really dominated by addiction. Um, My father was a very high-functioning, white-collar, type-A workaholic in flight from all of his feelings and placing blame everywhere else very very stressed tense household and my mother is a food addict Um, she came to recognize this and go to uh, overeaters anonymous and really like name that for herself very late in life, but we were all living with that. And that was being modeled for me. So I just want to name that out of the gates here that I have been really helped by a lot of therapy and Al-Anon meetings to, you know, and I feel like I dodged a bullet. I somehow dodged a bullet that I myself Did not, for whatever reasons, the way all the balls bounced, I did not develop an addiction that has been difficult for me to work with. And I'm very grateful for that and just sort of don't feel like I can take credit for that because that's not our fault, right? It's just like, I think my lucky stars kind of thing, but very much shaped by being a child in a household like that. And took me years to realize that the narrative, the happy narrative of this high-functioning, relatively well-off white American family belied a kind of emotional brutality. And um, yeah, so yeah, that's very easily activated still. So that's where I come from. And coming out of college i was living in new york city in the mid-1980s and i was uh, a, a roommate of mine got literally sucked into kind of a spiritual cult and just by my circumstances some spiritual stuff just came up like she took me to meet this guru and he's spouting all these you know vedic stuff and I was like, kind of confused. And so I started reading and exploring to make sense out of that. And then I saw, a, you know, there was this place called the East West Bookstore in in the village in New York in the eighties. And on their bulletin board, I saw this flyer and a friend of mine said, oh, let's go. It was this huge workshop in a hotel ballroom. And that workshop changed my life. So it was, A meditation teacher named Stephen Levine, who at the time was writing books in the 80s, beautiful collection of books. He himself came from a very, what's the right adjective, high stress household and was a biker dude and a heroin addict, among other things, multiple addictions. And his recovery in the 70s led him to Buddhist meditation. And he did Deep, deep, deep retreats. And by the time I crossed paths with him in the 80s, he um, was doing these workshops. So at the time, the AIDS crisis was just devastating New York City. And uh, my friend and I went to this huge hotel ballroom. There's like 500 people, at least 60 to 75, maybe percent of them were gay men grappling with their deaths and the deaths of their lovers. And it was intense. And I'm just like this little privileged white girl from the burbs sitting over there against the wall, just like riveted to this, my heart breaking. And the compassion of this man, Stephen Levine, absolutely blew me away. His heart was big enough to hold that room and all the pain in it. And the way he would speak to these men when they shared their pain, I just, I had never heard anything like it. I had never had anything close to this modeled in my life. And it was just, I think that's where some deep compass point got set right but you know I'm 24 I'm running around New York and it was some years later before I actually read one of his books and then he oh he's out here in Colorado and doing I did another workshop and in my second workshop with him I was then about 27 or 8 and it was like okay okay what did he do to become like that I want to be like that when I grow up, right? I want that capacity of heart. I want I want that, right? And so I went to the bookstore and I got one of, I looked on the back of his, the cover of his book and it said he had done Vipassana meditation. And I'm like, okay, if that's what he did, that's what I'm going to do. And I signed up for the next Vipassana. I didn't even know, you know, this word. I actually thought it was Vipassana. I had no clue. And I just showed up. And then that was it. And now it's been 30 years later. I'm, I'm now that path has given me the, the balm of, you know, healing trauma and becoming my own dear friend instead of my own worst critic. And it's, it's just, it's probably saved my marriage in the sense of, Working with my reactivity and my wanting to blame other people, like the tools I've gotten from that Buddhist path have served me so well, along with the aforementioned lots of therapy. And now I really just want to pay it forward. So long answer to your question, but like I said, I relish telling that story because I don't get to very often. Yeah, so some of us in Bozeman kind of pooled our resources to have a dedicated center for meditation. And uh, that's the Dharma Center. That was about eight years ago now. And a a lot of different groups meet there and groups that have been long standing in the area. We kind of just moved under the same roof. But actually to answer the last bit of your question about the mindful self-compassion course and that material in specific, So about six years ago, um, the Dharma Center streamed a workshop recorded somewhere else uh, with Kristen Neff, who has written a book called Self-Compassion. She's one of the co-authors of this course. And uh, we just streamed this workshop and I was just like, Oh my God, she's saying everything that I would want to say if I sat down, if I took, you know, six weeks in a cabin in the woods to write what I've learned and what I would want to offer and how I would want to pay this forward. She just said it and her course has laid it out. This is so I just felt like I was euphoric when I found this. And I'm like, great, I don't have to go spend six months in a cabin to kind of, you know, put all this on paper. She's done it. And I immediately went and did the full eight-week course in a a residential retreat format. And And then immediately got trained to offer it here because no one at the time was offering it in Montana, I think. So then it's over the past six years now, it's just been... My greatest joy in my work is teaching that class. And I've teamed up with different therapists and one pediatrician in town whose mindfulness is self-compassion is part of her, what she prescribes uh, to her kids and families in her pediatric practice. So it's just been a fabulous collaboration with people in the area offering this exquisite course.
1: Yes. No, that's amazing. And thank you so much for being willing to share your story. I know it can be very, it's very vulnerable to share that, that, um, kind of information at times. And, um, I appreciate just getting to hear it and walk that with you. So
2: one of the, one of the things that this course helps us realize is that vulnerability is the most precious part of us and nothing to shy away from. And that's showing that vulnerability, you know, uh, RuPaul and other people also say this when you, when you're willing to show that vulnerability, you can
1: really connect with people. And so, yeah, my pleasure. Very true. Yeah. So will you kind of lay the groundwork for us then? Can you talk to us a little bit about why is meditation helpful and why is it worth our time to yeah. even take a look at that modality?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That, that is the question that I in attempt to answer every time I teach, I think that's the question behind all the other questions. Well, first of all, I want to name for your listeners that I do come from a Buddhist background, right? Because Stephen Levine did. So that's what I did. But two things about that first the buddhist path is all about recovery from addiction that is what it is the buddha's four noble truths name that we dear tender troubled humans have this mind wired a certain way and the source of our struggles is this kind of craving you know where so just to put the four noble truths in in you know like make it real for our lives first this human life is a rough ride shit happens it's going to hurt right that's the first noble truth the second is that we have inherited a mind through which we interpret all our experience that is really an organ Uh, evolved as a survival mechanism, right? It is not evolved to make us happy and give us a sense of well-being and that profound everything's okay with me in the world. No, it is constant threat detection, right? Uh, I'll just, I'm going to try to be brief because I gave such a long-winded first answer. So second noble truth, we have these minds that make it worse, right? Third, there is a way out of this, right? There's a way to work with it. You gotta put in some time and work, but you can get out of that prison of the mind, right? It is said that when you take up these practices, whether they're from Buddhism or whatever other mystical tradition or secular mindful self-compassion, you know, teachers privately behind our closed doors joke that these practices first, will wake you up to the fact that you're in a prison. <laughs> and then they give you the tools to get out. Right. So that's the third noble truth. This is workable. You've got to take in so you've got to take in some concepts and sort of understand what you're up against and learn some tools and find a way to customize and get those tools to work for you. And then just keep at it. Right. And then just to finish the list, you know, we Buddhists on our list. The fourth noble truth is okay, here are the tools. Here's the perspective, right view, here's the tools, and encouragement to keep going. So a friend of mine who um, is a recovery and addiction specialist, Dave Smith, if anybody wants to look him up or put Dave Smith Dharma in the notes, um, he's a meditation teacher. And an expert in something called cultivating emotional balance, whose specialty is in recovery. And um, he has had some really interesting things to say that have informed me when I teach to um, classes or groups that are around recovery, behavior change, uh, you know, working with addiction. The Dharma Center did have a recovery group for a while. But when COVID hit, we moved it online and then we just all merged with Dave Smith's online recovery program. So we don't really have our own anymore. But I want to bring in Dave's wisdom because I think it might be really, really helpful to some people before we say more about the mindful self-compassion stuff. Dave says the difference between like 12-step based approaches to behavior change and the Buddha's four plus eight is also 12 step program for behavior change are two key differences and those might be helpful for people to just clarify the first is that within a buddhist framework there is no insistence on the higher power there is room for it absolutely if that works for you there's room to define that in multiple ways and sort of non-theistic ways you know, for me, I think of just like this cloud of benevolent, I call it the benevolent ones, plural, and that's what's worked for me. So there's room for it. And Buddhist recovery is not incompatible with it. It's just that there isn't an insistent insistence on it. And secondly, just, I find it interesting having, you know, dipped my toes in the 12 step world. There's a difference around a sense of being powerless over my addiction it can be really helpful for some people to kind of admit that they are powerless over it but that it's very different from a buddhist perspective you're not powerless there's a shift from my addiction has me to i have my addiction right and that's the same in the in both programs so maybe i'm just splitting hairs here but from the buddhist perspective there is always a part of me that is bigger than this addiction, bigger than my wounding, bigger than my trauma. And it's all about practices to access that and draw on that those parts of me as a resource. So there's this fundamental shift, like a figure ground shift to, from it has me to I have it. And a kind of re, a reassurance, no, you are not powerless. You have resources, you have it within you. And resources from outside of you, you can draw on. So to bring all that full circle, I just want to name that the Buddhist practices from which the mindful self-compassion course was derived really are profoundly about becoming our own best friend, supporting ourselves through behavior change, and working with myriad addictions that we humans have. Including addiction to my sense of self, addiction to a na- certain narrative that keeps me comfortable that might include some negative core beliefs, including addiction to my own thinking. So, yeah, it's why would uh, meditation teachers' comments be helpful in working with addiction? That's why.
0: So can you tell us what are maybe some misconceptions about mindfulness? Because I think that and meditation as a a generality, because I think I've definitely subscribed to them before when starting out my own practice.
2: Yeah. I'm so glad you asked because I feel like our culture is kind of perpetuating a lot of misconceptions out there that we just kind of absorb without even realizing it. You know, I see the ads on my Instagram feed for the Calm app and all this stuff, and I just kind of grit my teeth. It's like, oh, you're part of the problem right here. So let me speak a little bit to that. So, you know, the I think a lot of people have a misconception that mindfulness, just being in the present, will make them feel calm and peaceful and like ah, like the end of the yoga class when I get to lie on my mat and do nothing for a minute and just breathe. Ah, okay, it it can be that, and there are practices designed to evoke that. Yes, but it's so much more than that, and you're likely to run into a lot of other stuff right? So mindfulness will show us what's going on. It'll show us the extent to which our mind is kind of on a hamster wheel, looping on stuff, rehearsing for the future, rehashing the past, constantly checking, am I okay? Am I okay? Does everyone think I'm okay? Right? That's what the mind is. I'll speak for myself. That's what my mind is essentially doing, right? That's that's what you might say is the default setting of this survival mechanism, right? Which, you know, we won't go into why that is, but there's lots out there and the neurologists and the anthropologists and the therapists can speak to that. So mindfulness will show you that, oh my gosh, there's like a scared five-year-old running the show in here. The other thing is mindfulness will, if you sit down and get quiet with yourself before too long, a lot of unfelt stuff that you blew through during your day is sitting there undigested and will come up again. You know, the anger that from that person said that to me yesterday, and that really rubbed me the wrong way, that's going to come rushing back in, right? So like undigested material Uh, will come up to be digested and if we aren't if we don't include that as part of what our meditation is and if we don't see the value in that we will we might reject it as oh this isn't working my mind's you know i've heard people say i can't meditate i tried my mind's all over the place and it's I, it just doesn't work for me. It's like, yes, you've had your first key insight that, the, that meditation gifted you. Your mind is all over the place. Welcome to the human race, right? It's not your mind. It's the mind. So it's like, I really want people to kind of know that as they embark on this, because if they have a false sense that Uh, This is going to make me calm and peaceful and calm my anxiety. They might run screaming from their cushion when it's not that, right? So (laughs) that's maybe enough of an answer about that for now. But yeah, from there, I mean, that's the essence of it. And from there, you begin to work with what you observe. Like, oh, my mind is doing this. You know, Molly knows from our class that the the starting gate for really a meditation practice or mindful self-compassion work or is this question who is talking to whom in there and how does it feel and it can be very unsettling because we most of us have identified with the inner critic most of us have identified with the voice that's chattering to ourselves and we think that's me And when we get to breathe a little space in there and like, what if that's not me? What if that's a conditioned voice that this apparatus of my survival mind was uh, due to evolution, designed to pick up and form this voice? The question, who's talking to whom, is also, well, are you the one speaking or are you the one listening? Who's receiving this criticism? And maybe there's another you that's aware of both. There's a kind of witness observer now. So mindfulness begins to create a witness observer that breaks the identity with the who's talking and who's listening. And that can be a little destabilizing. So that's the other thing I would like to tell people at the beginning, right? It's going to rock your boat a little bit because you couldn't help but have identified with this. And people start to get a little vertigo like, oh, well, who am I if I'm not that voice? Or wait a minute, that voice has been the source of my motivation. I'm going to lose all my motivation, right? So you have to do some recalibrating and it's really good to go slowly. You know, Kristen Neff has this line, go slower, get there sooner. So you have to go slowly and tenderly and sort of like take some good deep breaths all along the way and just like step by step, right? Let me see if there was something else. Oh yeah. The other thing you'll notice. Okay. No, I wanted to work this in because it directly relates to food (laughs) and the inner talk we have around what we're going to eat and why. And then, oh my God, I can't believe I ate that. So (laughs) years in that same workshop, 30 I'm not going to count. It was more than 30 years ago in that New York City ballroom. Stephen Levine said, your mind is a trickster. And he used the the self-talk around eating a second and third and fourth brownie as his example. And I have never forgotten it. And it has served me so well. He said, the mind will, you know, you see the brownie and the mind will say, oh, you deserve a treat. Oh, this is a form of self-compassion and nurture. You've worked so hard. you got that big project done. You've been so good. You exercise three days in a row, whatever it is, right? There's a, you know, picking up all the evidence that, oh, you deserve this treat of this brownie. You, oh, and continue more of the same, the second one, the third one. And then after I've eaten the third one, it will viciously turn on a dime and say, I cannot believe you did that. You have no discipline. You just broke all your promises to yourself. Like who is this mind that did that to me? That is not self-compassion. That's oof, right. So we want to we want to break the identification with that trickster mind and develop this this sort of witness observer. And over time we get more and more space and the power in that voice starts to drain away. And we start to hear it as that chattering six-year-old who's desperate to be loved, or this trickster that doesn't necessarily have our best interests in mind. And we can come up with little names for these different voices. And again, it's that fundamental shift from it has me to I have it. And then over time, I can disempower it. And it can be like a weird bird flying through the sky. The sky does not is not bothered by whatever kind of bird just flew through here, right? So we begin to identify with that awareness and a kind of spaciousness. and. That is what, in my lineage, we refer to as freedom, right? I can remain steady and present and hold my ground no matter what bird flies through the sky, whatever kind of thought. And maybe this is one last little misconception I'll weave in here since I've arrived at the idea. You know... We all kind of think that to be free of anxiety or free of anger is that it doesn't come up anymore. Well, I'm 35 years in here and I'm here to tell you people, it still comes up, right? It's going to come up. I have a human mind. It's the mind. It's, it's right. It's part of the little relative self, you know, you could say, or yeah, yeah freedom from my anxiety or my inner critic or my anger or my reactivity is not that it doesn't come up it's that i have created a stable enough witnessing place and i'm i've i've through the tools of the practice created enough sort of resourced ballast in my ship that it can come up and i smile and say oh there you are again and let it fly on by. Like the freedom is not that it doesn't come up. The freedom is that you're unperturbed and you don't take the bait, right? And that is exactly how the, I mean, that is, that is the point of Buddhist liberation. And you can hear right there how that is the key to behavior change or, you know, creating enough wisdom and compassion and resources to let craving come by and know that you're know that you can ride it through know that it's a wave that is passing and you do this by doing reps like just just like in the gym you know experimenting with curiosity and a lot of fruit self-forgiveness a lot of self-compassion and just get in the sort of gym of your mind and explore and try and you know if you keep at it these
1: are the fruits that are promised by the path. So can you talk then a little bit about how meditation, mindfulness, and self-compassion all kind of come together under this concept of mindful self-compassion? Like, what is it? Who is it for, you yeah, know, for yeah, anybody yeah. who wants to maybe look into the course?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bring me down out of the clouds. Let's get into the nuts and bolts. The practice, the tools, like, oh, that all sounds lovely, Suzanne, but what do I do, right? Right. So mindfulness is the, is sort of ground zero. The ground, mindfulness is putting the foundation in under your, you know, if we're going to build the structure here. Without being aware of who's talking to whom in there, what am I actually feeling? Like these feelings of these cravings in the body, this neediness, a longing, a sadness, a bellyache, you know, so it's somatic as well. It's the talk in the mind and feeling and sensation in the body. So we need to be, to, to get in the game, we need tools of mindfulness. And they're thankfully now, here's where I'm grateful to the fact that mindfulness has gone mainstream and you got innumerable apps and you know, supports out there and classes everywhere. That's great. So find a source of, of a mindfulness practice and start there, you know, whichever teacher you like, I really like the 10% happier app, but you know, choose, choose your faith. Then self-compassion is really the antidote to the inner critic and the antidote to shame and the antidote to this pervasive sense that I'm lacking. I'm not enough. Like so many of us carry. And so for that, you know, the work of Kristen Neff, um Chris Germer has a beautiful book called The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion. Wherever, you know, you see it in your world, whatever you're drawn to. That's what I love about this stuff. You you kind of identify, all right, this is a tool I want to learn. This is a tool I want to have in my toolbox. And you follow the kind of breadcrumbs toward it, you know, see where you're drawn, see what shows up, what teacher really resonates with you. But self-compassion is really the art of becoming your own supportive, kind, best friend and building a access to a wise, compassionate voice in you that can also be a source of motivation, right? The inner critic is not the only option to be your source of motivation. If you explore the world of self-compassion and all the facets in it, There are exercises to begin to listen for and access a wise, compassionate voice. And often we need to borrow that voice before we internalize it and can find it feel like it's my voice. So, a lot of people, it's their favorite grandmother, it's their dog, if she could talk, it's Kuan Yin, it's Mother Mary, it's whoever the Dalai Lama, I mean, whoever it is for you. Imagine a source of wise clear seeing a being that imagine that they see you fully they know all your warts and flaws and all your shortcomings and how hard your inner critic has been on you and they they kind of witness it all and love you deeply and say welcome to the human race it's okay you're doing great you're doing your best you have a good heart you're trying hard And whatever goes down, I'm here with you, right? I'll be with you through it. And when we can source that from a source and over time internalize it, then we're good. And then it's like riding the bike downhill from there, right? It still can be hard. You know, life will dole out (laughs) overwhelming situations, loss, you know, illness, aging, death, right? that's part of the deal here. We don't get to ride the human ride without that. But once we have that with us to kind of carry through, I mean, that's for me, the definition of resilience, right? So um, let me just see if there was any anything else I wanted to say, right? Nuts and bolts, trying to stick to nuts and bolts. So there are three tools, I would say. Here, here are the four key things I think you need to have in your backpack for this journey the first is the fundamental perspective on your mind right that the mind isn't you and that your intention here is to see it for the survival apparatus that it is that can serve you well i love it when it reminds me where i left my keys right it's not that and and planning stuff and Right it's not that there's no beauty there and and value. I mean my god, right? It's the most exquisite tool. But the old saying, the mind is a wonderful servant but a terrible master, right? So the first thing in your toolbox is to understand that unequivocally, like and and form an intention to cultivate A wise and compassionate relationship to your mind (laughs) and yourself. Then the next three things in your backpack are the tools. First, a mindfulness practice that gives you the means to let that critical thought, the distraction, the trickster, the aversion, all those weird birds, let them fly on by. So, Hone a mindfulness practice so that over time you get more and more stable at being the sky that and you're just watching stuff fly through, right? So that that's a sort of mature mindfulness practice, or in my tradition, we call it we would call that a wisdom practice. The second tool is a heart practice or this compassion, right? To find a source, as I said before, of nurture, self-support, kindness. We're all so starved for it, right? And we're all like going around with our empty cup, looking for it in all the wrong places, right? So the second tool, and I mean this as like a thing that you sit down and do, not a nice idea, But a practice, and we can explore what that might sound like. We might do one in a few minutes. But a practice that helps bring forward your wise, compassionate, resilient, radiant heart self. And the third is what I call a tranquility practice, but it is a calming, grounding, resourcing practice to intervene when you're activated, right? Right. So thankfully now a lot of therapists teach this, like as part of the psychoeducation and therapy, right? And the whole field of somatic experiencing, like we're titrating, we're pendulating now. God, when I started therapy, it was just like foot on the gas and was not so great, right? So so the third tool to have in your backpack is... Learn how to navigate your nervous system to bring in the parasympathetic nervous system and deactivate, right? Whether you have a little mantra, whether you do square breathing, whether you put your hands, like physical touch is good. Yeah, hands on the body in these, like our mammalian bodies, really respond to this reassuring, firm, safe, grounding touch. So all of that, like, so there's toolkits within each of those, right? You know, when we talk about a toolkit, you got three sections. You've got your mindfulness and wisdom practice. You've got your heart, compassion, kindness practice, and you have this, I know how to regulate my nervous system when I need to, right? And I know when I need a timeout. And for me, sometimes it's walking and stamping my feet on the floor to get back in my body, right? So we, I just named like five of the ones in my tranquility toolkit, stamping my feet, pressing my uh, hand on my chest and my forehead, saying my little, it's okay, (laughs) mantras, right? Square breathing. So we build, we build those, we build those practices and it takes time. And Yeah, but there's nothing thrills me more in this life. Well, maybe seeing my kids do well and be happy, seeing my kids learn self-compassion and become there and not be hard on themselves. My kids, my students, my own ever, I mean, it's an ever-growing thing. It's not like I'm done. It's not like we're ever done, but it does get easier and it gets funnier. You, You begin to laugh at the cosmic joke of it. It gets lighter for sure.
0: I'm loving this. Loving it. I'm so glad.
2: I'm loving it too. But sometimes, you know, it's like, I don't know, maybe you'll edit out half of this because it was not then, whatever. So let's do some practices, right? So, what? you know, I just described it like to your head, right? You heard that from the neck up, but what is that as a lived experience from the neck down? So that's where the rubber meets the road and i really encourage people yes we need to read some books we i mean the buddha started with the right view we need to take in the perspective of okay here's what i'm up against here's what's happening here's my intention here's what i want to cultivate so we start with that and books and listening to you know podcasts are great for that and it's no substitute for getting on the bike and starting to pedal and feel how you balance and what is it as a felt experience? So let's close out the rest of our time together with maybe some guided practice, or if or if either of you have questions that relate to the experience of it and the doing of it, then I'll address those.
1: Is it possible? And, and certainly the answer can absolutely be no, but is it possible that one of the practices could be around shame?
2: Oh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, Sure. Oh, just go say. right to the
0: heaviest weight yeah, in the gym. Yeah, yeah. Okay. our listeners can handle it. Our listeners, okay,
2: can, yeah. okay. This <laughs> is where most of
0: us live and spend right, most of our time. Right.
2: So true. And if you can turn toward shaming, turn toward almost anything. So yeah, there's brilliance in that. But also know for the listeners that yeah, this is a biggie, and. um, and our, we will naturally just pull out of it. And all of a sudden we're thinking about what we're going to have for lunch. And that's your mind's naturally, or your, your system. I tend to be very careful when I use the word mind, um, that's your systems, you know, pendulating away to kind of make, make sure this is a manageable dose. So again, not the misconception that, oh, you didn't stick with the meditation. You're not good at it. No, maybe that's some wise, innate pendulating way to modulate the size of the weight you're trying to lift. So that's welcome. Well, shame is, I guess I feel the urge to say just a couple things about it for the head before we start, that it is universal. We're wired to have it. Again, it's part of our survival wiring to keep us in good stead with caregivers that we are survivally dependent on when we're young, right? So just name that ever so briefly. We all have it. The thing about shame is that we're afraid that there are parts of ourselves that if other people saw, you know, if other people saw this, they would see that deep down, I'm not really okay. I'm not that great. I'm not really lovable. They'll be like, oh, they'll be like disappointed. Like, oh, this beautiful thing I bought is flawed or, you know, that feeling of, uh, so that's kind of a core sense of shame and it helps to know that everybody has it and kind of like the tricks, the mind will play. Shame will tell you that you better keep this secret, but one of the best ways to heal it is to, you know, share that secret with other kind, supportive people and hear from them before we can say to ourselves, oh, it's totally okay that you have that. We all have something, right? (laughs) That's part of being human. So, okay. So let's, let's do a practice. Let's, you know, turn inward. So any practice starts with what Some people call the U-turn from our attention going out, out, out to turning and coming down into our bodies in our own felt experience. And for some people, closing their eyes is really helpful to support that, but you don't have to. You can soften your gaze and just look at the floor in a sort of unfocused way. And we start by simply getting into the body and out of our heads and we use often we use the breath for that not because there's anything special or spiritual about the breath but that it is a sensation for sure you can find in the body and for most of it it's sort of neutral there's not a big story about the breath it should be there it shouldn't be there i don't have the right kind of breath we we don't tend to have some do like with asthma but take a deep breath like accentuate your inhale and your exhale and find where in the body you most strongly feel it and just kind of pinpoint, okay, it's here, my chest, my stomach. It can be deep inside or it can be the movement of clothes on your skin as you breathe, wherever. It's a sensation in your body happening here and now. And so we use that. Now, if we were really doing an exercise on shame, we would want to linger here and build some presence, build some stability, just feel the breath for a while. But um, so I guess you could pause the recording and just sit and breathe a little and then resume. But if you're willing to experiment, then call to mind something you're kind of embarrassed about or something that just what comes to mind when I say what's something about you, you hope others don't see, maybe not the worst thing, maybe not the biggest thing, something, you know, if there's a whole menu there, choose like an appetizer size. Now we want to, we want to activate it just a little bit in the body, right. To have something to work with. So, Just sitting here, you're just sitting still and breathing with your eyes closed or unfocused, but in your mind, pretend you're telling me the story uh, about this piece of you that you're not thrilled about and you wish you didn't have and you hope others don't see. And then pause right there. We don't need any more and drop back down in the body and feel what you feel. What has come up in the body? Is there tension in the belly? Did the breathing get shallow? Do your hands feel cold or your shoulders feel tight? And right now, just feel that as a physical sensation. Just sit and breathe and feel. Because what we're willing to feel, we can heal. And sense if there's a part of you that's kind of with kindness, with good intentions, witnessing. There's a part of you watching, feeling this sensation in the body. So there's sensation of breathing the sensation that the shame brought up and then there's a bigger you that's sitting and watching and feeling and knowing There's the you that's aware of a sensation happening within the volume of your physical body and your mind might want to think about it or fix it or have commentary that is totally normal that's what minds do and so you can be aware of that happening the breathing feels like this my shame feels like this my mind wants to do this but you're steady like the sky, just aware of it all. And we just come back as many times as we wander away, we come back, connect with the breath and see how it feels now, has it shifted? And the more we do this, the more we come to see that it's just a sensation. It's just this tightness in the belly, I can sit with that, I can breathe with that, I'm okay. It's not comfortable. I might wish it would go away. I might wish I never have to feel this again. That too, that's part of it too, of course. And we can hold all of that with a tenderness, like, yes, sweetheart, it hurts. It's part of life, it's not your fault. And you're okay, you can be okay, just sitting and breathing with it. And the more we are willing to experiment with this, the more we'll see that we really are okay. And it's a wave that will pass. And if it really doesn't feel okay, if it feels like you're on very thin ice, you can imagine someone who cares about you, imagine in your mind's eye, someone who for you represents kindness, wisdom, clear seeing, someone with a huge heart. They may be real or unreal, known or unknown to you. You can just say, help. Help me through this. Imagine this being just coming to sit here with you. And you can borrow their capacity to sit through anything. Just put your head on their lap. Or imagine them sitting in front of you. You might hear them whisper, yeah, it's it's hard. I'm here with you. You don't have to go it alone. And you're going to be okay. Sometimes we close these practices with whispering to ourselves an intention or a wish, or you can think of it as a prayer that you be happy. You might say, may I be happy? May I find ease? May I find this kind of resilience and compassion and soak it in? May I build this for myself? May I know I'm worth it. May I know it's possible. May I find the supports I need to grow and internalize these skills. May I become a happy, radiant, strong, tender, kind, lovable, and loving human being. So, whenever you're ready, you can let the practice go. Open your eyes. Sometimes I like to really get back in my body, like feel, rub, press my hands together, or rub my upper arms, or press my hands into my thighs. Like, yeah, okay, I'm back. Look around your room. You really, yeah, want to ground. And like, here's where those techniques of grounding and just encouraging your nervous system to let something go and come back to right here, right now, where you're just doing your thing in the middle of your day and everything that was in that meditation can fade if you need it to. Okay. Well, any questions following that or anything else you might want to cover before we end this episode
0: I think I might use your voice as my self compassion voice. Like, I just feel this whole interview has given me goosebumps the whole time. And I just can see how beneficial this will be to all our listeners. But I took so much from this. So thank you, Mm -mm. Suzanne. Oh, well. Believe
2: me when I say it's my pleasure. Like I get totally high off this stuff and I, you know, I love nothing more than sharing this, you know? So you might include in the, if you have, I don't know, links on the episode page of your website, you know, Chris Germer and Kristen Neff have fabulous websites with guided, Meditations of different lengths, you know, offering all kinds of tools to build what we've spent the last hour talking about building. And I also am a big fan of Tara Brock, her book, Radical Compassion, uh, any of her books, actually, but her Radical Compassion is a Fave, and her teachings on the acronym RAIN are really are also, they are the same tools with just like some different labels and acronyms as the meditations and practices in the mindful self-compassion course. So you can draw on just all those resources out there. If people want to go further in this vein, their books, their websites, and they're guided again, the rubber meets the road in the experience of this folks. So when in doubt, don't pick up the book and read, click on the recording and, you know, play with it, explore, uh, because you're only going to cut, you're only going to find your way into it and customize it and find what works for you by doing the practices. So, you know, I tell my students, it's like, um, you know, it's like trying on a coat. I don't know these days, everybody, I don't know if anybody has tailored suits anymore, but certainly if you're going to the Met Gala, your gown is tailored to your body. So we do have models for that still in this culture. So, you know, this stuff doesn't really fit right off the rack. You want to play with it and explore it and find what works for you. And
0: so, yeah. So we do have one signature question that I was having so much compassion for myself. I completely forgot I should ask. Oh,
2: great. Well, this is, I think I know what's coming from your email and I, this is like the cherry on top to end with. So go ahead.
0: So yes. If you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about self-compassion, what would it be? It would be.
2: Oh, God, it makes me cry because I was so starved for it then. And I'm so grateful that I have it now. So just give me a sec. Um, I would say, I would say, sweetheart, I would start with something tender. Sweetheart, you don't have to be perfect. You really don't. You don't have to be on your game all the time. It's okay to let down your guard. It's okay to feel the stuff you don't want to feel. You're not alone. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other because such beauty awaits. That's what I'd say.
1: Wow. Thank you again, Suzanne, so much for agreeing to do this. And it must've come out of left field for you. But just, I think that, our listeners. I know I've gotten so much from you over the last year, Clarissa, clearly it sounds like you feel like this has been something you've learned from. So I know our listeners will get so much from this and I just appreciate you. And we will definitely make sure to have all of those links. You know, people can do virtual courses. I'm sure through the Dharma center as well. I mean, I know we've, I've been in classes with people across the country, (laughs) so I imagine that's an option and I just, I just appreciate you and everything you do. And thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.